If you brought your Bible, and I hope you have, if you would turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, you should find one under a pew chair near you. If you can't, ask someone to grab you one someplace. Uh, I encourage you to follow along as we look at the Word of God. A ways back... Let me start this way. A little ways back, we started in the book of 1 Corinthians. We are now in chapter 7. Last week, we looked at marriage as a big approach. We looked at the whole way through the Bible, looked at the major issues dealing with marriage, how God put it together, what God's view is, and all those kinds of things. Today, we are going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting at verse 1. But we're now going to begin looking at details. I will tell you that uh, marriage is important. If you've been married for a long time, you know it's important. If you're married for a medium amount, you're figuring out that it's really important. And if you're not married and you're a teenager or a young person, uh, you're thinking, it is really important, I want a spouse And if you're young, you're not still sure yet, but you're a little infatuated with the idea of marriage, good. Because guess what? Marriage is important. It's the first institution that God put into play in this world and the only institution that he put into practice before sin came into the world. So God sees it as a very high priority. And if you're going to have something that is that high a priority and is also that intimate, in other words, of all the relationships of life, marriage is different. Think about this. You go, well, what about children? Aren't, isn't that the closest? It is very, very close. But guess what? The child had nothing to do with it. Other people decided that relationship would be. In marriage, on the other hand, guess what? Two people decided they are going to become one flesh. The two shall become one, one unit. Two individuals that are now one, indivisible, inseparable for the rest of their lives. Wow, that's not only important, but that's serious. Remember, we talked about that last week. It's a serious thing. It's also the subject that I probably spend more time on as a pastor, especially in counseling. Because almost always, personal problems become marriage problems. It just works that way. And so I deal with this all the time. And I will also tell you that when I teach people what I see in the Bible, people don't always appreciate it at first. Because there's some very strong teachings. What we're going to see this morning is just going to get us on the surface of that. The rest of the chapter, and I'm not going to rush through this chapter uh, because I believe we need to look at it um, just as it's presented there and leave it say what it means. But we're going to start out uh, this morning by going to verse 1 and 2. The need for marriage. I going to do this real quickly because that was the big deal last week. But there it says, now concerning the things which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. He said, hey, it's good to be single and celibate. It's okay not to be married. But 
Every time you see a but, it's there. It means there's a contrast. But because of immoralities, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. That is a command. You notice I put it in parentheses there. In Greek, that's a command. It's saying, you know what? The normal natural thing is that people will get married. Now, not everybody is going to get married. This chapter is very clear and other places in Scripture are very clear. Not everybody should get married. This passage this morning is going to address that a little bit, and then we'll see more of it later. But it says immoralities. See, God knows the desires that he has built into us. They are desires to have intimacy, closeness, emotional uh, relationship, but also a sexual, physical relationship. We like somebody to be there with us. God put that into us. That's how he designed us as human beings. He knows those desires are strong and not everybody is willing or capable or choosing to simply remain single and celibate. And he said because of that, most people, and notice here it's not patriarchal here, it's equal opportunity. He says, let each man have his own wife, let each wife have her own husband. A little bit different than the Jewish patriarchal society because he's now dealing with Gentiles. He's dealing with, as I've said many times in Corinth, it was very much like the United States today. It was every kind of thinking and philosophy and lifestyle you could think of. And he's just saying, you know what? It fits both directions. And these desires are in um, men and women. In fact, this is tradition, Jewish culture, not the Bible. So I'm not advocating this. I'm just letting you know what the Jewish mindset was of this day. In the Jewish mindset in the Mishnah, it said that the rabbis taught that if you were a man and not married, you really weren't fully a man. Now, that is not what the Bible teaches, and that is not what Paul is teaching here. I'm just letting you know that in the Jewish society, it had that flavor, that cultural bent to it. But he is saying here, marriage is natural, normal, and because of the desires he's put in there, it's probably going to be that way. Most people do land up getting married. But not all. Second point this morning, there are obligations in marriage. This is one that people don't like. I like the idea of marriage. Most people do. Somebody to live with, be close to, and all those kinds of things. But here's what I know. When you say, I do, it is done, and you have now obligated yourself. That whole thing of obligations, here it says duty. Other words that are synonyms with that are responsibilities, a job, and a task. I do not want you to go out of here saying, oh, marriage is one more job. I already have a full-time job. Now I, you know, now I want to get married. Now i got a second full-time job. But there is an element of that. See, because when you are united inseparably with someone, one flesh, you now have responsibilities that go with it. And this passage makes it clear. If you choose to say, I do, you have now obligated yourself for and toward your spouse. And notice it goes both directions. It's not one direction. It's husbands and wives. We have a duty to fulfill. It literally, uh, that duty is a debt 
that we have. It's a debt. You, by saying I do and agreeing to live with this person in marriage with that commitment, you have now indebted yourself to that person. Notice it doesn't say the other one is demanding of you. It's like, no, you know that you have signed on for that. By the way, if you got married and nobody ever taught you this, sorry uh, that they didn't do that. I wish they would. I won't marry anybody without at least eight sessions of premarital counseling. And that is just the minimum. I've done way more than that many times. Because I don't want anybody, like I said about that petition that I have, I don't want you to sign anything unless you know what you're getting in for. But let's face it, lots of people go into marriage without considering the duty. And there is a duty. You don't expect to get a job someplace and just go in and sit around, take vacation whenever you want, or take a break whenever you want. No, you have duties. You have a, a... expectation that is in there. And in marriage, it is exactly the same way. In fact is, as we go through this passage, you'll realize that the major thing that he is talking about here is in a sexual realm. It's not, it's not limited to that, but that is the general direction this whole thing goes. And I say it this way, when you get married, there is a certain expectation. I recognize all individuals are different. All marriages are slightly different. Uh, Our situations are slightly different. But there is a certain expectation that goes with the marriage relationship. Oh, by the way, if you think that's odd, if you have a friend, there are expectations that go with friendships. If you have a relationship in business, there are expectations that go with that. So it shouldn't surprise us that marriage also has expectations, duties that we are to carry out. And that's what he's getting across here, that certain expectation. I believe that we can, not only from this passage, but others, there are emotional expectations, there are physical expectations, there are spiritual expectations, there are physical and expectations. All of them are there. We have an obligation to the person we marry. But there are also rights of marriage. This one here is the one that one day um, my wife suggested to a a lady that she she was kind of unloading on my wife. And she said, you you and your husband need to go see my husband and, uh, you know, counsel with him. And my wife had explained just a little bit about this verse because, uh, anyway, she had. And when she talked to me, um, I'm not sure if they ever, oh, they did. They actually showed up one time, and that was the end of it. But I told her, I said, here's, here's the, what this verse says. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, notice the, the, the flip here, also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. She said, I'll counsel with you, but you're not allowed to use that verse. Now, you don't tell me that. I'm not going to ever do that. I'm going to tell you whatever the Bible says and what is appropriate at the moment. I don't know if I ever did get to that verse or not. I don't know. But... It's like, there is no way I want to deal with that. But here's what you need to understand. This verse is simply saying this. The way it's written in Greek is this. You no longer have exclusive rights to your life, your body. 
doesn't say you don't have any rights at all. It simply says, because you are one flesh, you are in this together, you no longer have exclusive rights. Here's what I'll tell you. Young people, the others aren't married. You have exclusive rights to your body. It's hands off to anybody that you're not married to. Oh, that's not very popular today, but that's exactly what this is teaching. Is there is a time when you had exclusive rights to your body, particularly in sexual ways. You have exclusive rights. Nobody else has rights to your body. When you get married, that's no longer true. You see, you still have control. You're still you. But it's not exclusively you. You now have a spouse who also has a certain expectation, and you have a certain expectation from them. That's what this is getting across. If you get out of this, there's a problem. I will tell you, and I'll give you an extreme illustration. It doesn't usually go this far. But I remember, and it's probably 15 years ago or more now, uh, a lady that, and by the way, they, they moved away to Timbuktu someplace years ago, so you don't know who I'm talking about, so don't try to figure it out. But this lady, I had never counseled with her or her husband before. And if you, you know what my office is like, there's three steps going down into my office. She walked in my office, and before she hit the bottom of the steps, she said, I'm scared for my marriage, or I'm afraid for my marriage. And by the time she sat in the chair, which is just two more steps, she said, we haven't had sex in six months. I'm going, you should be afraid for your marriage. And I'm, I don't want to be crude here, but I said, you know what, by this time... Anything that wears a skirt is going to look attractive to your husband. And anyone that's nice to you and speaks kindly to you is going to be attractive to you. I have used that many times. But let's face it, you know what I'm talking about. The whole thing is you have an expectation in marriage. It includes every part of marriage, mentally, physically, spiritually. You have obligations to each other. And if you don't fulfill those obligations, you are putting your spouse in peril. I will never make excuses for anyone having an affair. That is not what I'm doing. Because I absolutely don't believe that. But what you do is you put them in a bad spot. You really do. Because you now have a responsibility of satisfying your partner. Notice it is not, I want this for me. That's not what this says. It says exactly the opposite. It's like, you have a need, I have a responsibility to fulfill it. It can be in any area. My wife and I, and she knows I'm going to use this illustration because it, it caused a little uh, marital discord this week. Um, just a discussion, but, you know, it, it, you're laughing because you know what I'm talking about. But uh, we had... Three big maple trees taken down. Those helicopters and all that, the leaves, they're a mess. The roots were coming up through the grass. We decided to get rid of them. Well, I thought, we're going to have this nice patch of grass. I can get my commercial mower, and in five minutes, I can be done mowing the yard and all that kind of stuff. Well, then she decides, well, we have to have trees. Well, we were talking about little trees, ones that don't get big. And then I get a phone call that says, oh, by the way, before I order those trees and set them aside, this one tree gets pretty big. And I'm like, what? You know what? Truth is, I didn't want trees at all. But you know what? My wife's need for trees and nice aesthetics and all that kind of stuff. You know what? I have to capitulate to that. Because part of what happens here is that 
I don't have complete authority. If it was up to me, there'd be no trees anymore. I'm done with those things. Guess what I'm doing tomorrow, guys? I am digging holes and planting two trees, and then I'm going to go plant another tree. The point is this. We have an obligation to our spouse. And if you're not willing to do that, don't say, I do. And if you've already done it and you didn't know this before, get your head straight. It's a matter of faith. It's, you, you say, I can't do that. My spouse irritates the living daylights out of me. I can't do it. Guess what? Christ said, and we've been singing, God is bigger. Christ is bigger. His power is greater than anything. You can do it. By the way, the Apostle Paul does not use the word love in this passage at all. This is the practical outworking of love. Because you notice everything that we've talked about, it says, put the other person first. See, the essence of sin is selfishness or self-centeredness. The essence of all this and the essence of love is the good, the well-being, and the welfare of the other person. That's what it's talking about. He's just being real practical. Hey, guys, you live in a sinful, messed-up world? Here's what you do. Here's how you live that out. You don't get to do anything you just simply want to. I don't go to tractor pulls without clearing it with my wife. By the way, if you've ever heard me say this before, I won't go to a tractor pull if my wife is mad at me. Because it's not worth it. It has to be by agreement. Now, we'll get to that here in a second. But this whole thing of authority means you no longer have exclusive jurisdiction. You no longer have exclusive rights to your life. There are exceptions to this. And again, I said this is absolutely, if this was a mar- uh, like an intimacy for couple Sunday school class or something, we'd be talking a lot different than this. But we have everyone from fourth graders to 94-year-olds in here. So we're, we're just keeping it like general. But the point is, there is a place for exceptions. He says there, stop depriving one another. By the way, that word depriving is a very... Sensitive word. It means don't rob your spouse. That's literally what it means. Look it up. Don't defraud them. Don't rob them. Don't deprive them of what they deserve or what they expect. Except by agreement. Now notice the underlines. By agreement, mutual agreement. Both people agree. For a time, it's a specific amount of time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. A specific reason. And there's a specific end. That's what Paul says. He says, is there a time to kind of back up, have abstinence in a marriage? And that's an exception. It's not the norm. It's the exception. He says, you need to do it in this way, in this manner. And that's what he says. I did not put this together. Somebody else did. I found it years ago. And this is uh, a simplified version of it. But there... They identified from this passage three principles. Principle of need. We're commanded to meet our spouse's sexual needs. The goal is to give them pleasure. It's not about me. It's about them. It's not demanding. It's me meeting their needs. That's what it is. I'm telling you, I've been counseling people long enough to know that in marriage there are two major weapons. You already know what they are. Money. Sex. They're the weapons. And when you start using those, you take two things that are totally good. Let's face it, money gets the food and pays the rent and the heat and all that kind of stuff. Nothing wrong with money. And sex, nothing wrong with it either. I thought I'd get an amen, Joe. (laughs) Just kidding, just kidding. 
Joe amends me every now and then, but he didn't do that on that. But, you know, I'm, I'm joking here, folks. The, but the point is, when you see people, and I've seen this way too many times, those two things get to be weapons that are used against the other person. If I don't get what I want, I'm guess what you're not getting? That's just the way it works. It's horrible. But the principle of need is, no, my job is to satisfy, to meet the needs of my spouse. I'm telling you, people think the Bible is a bunch of old fuddy-duddies. They haven't read it, and they don't know what it says, because the Bible is very up-to-date. And it says, hey, this is the way things work. The second principle is authority. We relinquish, I already went over this, the sole right to our body. And by the way, the only way this can actually happen, and it goes back to what I said before, without God's power, you can't do this. You have to have a commitment. That's why living together and all kinds of other marriage arrangements, well, they're not marriage arrangements, but living together arrangements, just don't work because there's no commitment. And if there's no commitment, you cannot give yourself over to somebody. In commitment, you can do that. There also has to be the trust can't lie to each other. You can't deceive each other. You do that, you've already, you're already on the downslide. And the last one I already mentioned is love. Because until we have those three things, you cannot abandon and feel comfortable saying, hey, somebody else has some rights to me. Can't do that. Doesn't work. Because it's like, well, what if they get more? What if, they, what if I get ripped off? What if it doesn't work? But when we look at marriage, it's a commitment for life. And so when you have that, you can deal with it. And then the third one is habit. And I put this up here. By the way, this does not say, don't read that wrong. It says you're not to cheat on your spouse. That would absolutely be wrong. Infidelity in marriage is is cheating and it's wrong, absolutely. But this doesn't say cheat on your spouse. It says you are not to cheat your spouse. Big difference between those two. Because the needs of the spouse are to be what I want to do. My wife needs trees in the yard. Well, that should be my need, that I need to do that. Okay, somebody amened it. Hey, thank you. I appreciate that. But you know what? Guys, it works. Women, by the way, did you notice this isn't all guy-centered in this passage? It goes both directions. I tell my wife that she spoiled... I used to tell her this. I said, you're spoiled rotten. She said, yeah, look who's talking. And she was right. She was right. Because if you do this, and by the way, don't anybody think I'm up here saying, oh, Faye and I got it all together. That's not what I'm telling you. We're married 43 years, and we can still butt heads, okay? We work it out. But the point is, I'm like, I don't want to do that. And then I go, okay, it's my wife. It's Faye. I'll do it. Right? And I'm sure she does exactly. She's not here to defend herself, but I'm sure she does exactly the same with me. Yeah, okay, thank you. See, Cobby's agreeing with me. Anyway, I'm moving on because I'm going to get out of time. So what do you do in the case, and we're just going to look at this case because there's a whole lot more cases coming in the the rest of these verses in this uh, scripture here, in this chapter. But what do you do in this case if your spouse dies? What do you do? How, do you? how do you deal with that? Well, picking up in verse 8, and there's a, a number of things. I'm going to do this in about five minutes, and then we'll pick everything else up in a future sermon. But in verse 8, it says this, But to the unmarried and to widows, 
I say, I'm sorry, I can't even read. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. That takes us right back to verse 1, which says, because, or verse 2, because of immoralities. But here we are looking at people that are widows and widowers. And you go, hold it a second, that's not what that verse says. Well, it actually does. Because the word widow simply means exactly the way we understand the word widow. It's a female whose husband has passed away. The word and connects them inseparably. And the unmarried is masculine. So all it's saying, they did not use the word widower. I guess that's a newer invention. They just said that God's no longer married. A little bit different society and those kinds of things. But all he's saying is, widows and widowers, it would be good to remain as me. Well, what does he mean by that? Here's what I believe. Notice the Apostle Paul classes himself as a widower. They would be just like I am. That's what he's saying there. What else do we know? First of all, we do know that he makes it clear later on in chapter 9 that he did not have a wife. He said, I'd have a right to take along a wife, just like the rest of the apostles. But he didn't have one. But it also tells us in Acts that when he was persecuting Christians, he said, and when they were deciding against them, I cast my vote against them. What he was saying is the Sanhedrin, the ruling body, he was a part of it. He had a vote in deciding who would die or who would be put in jail. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. We know from the Jewish records that you had to have two, two things had to be true to be a part of the Sanhedrin. You had to be at least 30 years old, so there was an age, and you had to be married. When you put everything we know from the Bible together, Paul says, I'm a widower. And right here is the one that's icing on the cake for me. He says, they remain even as I. The context says everything. It's somebody that's a widow or a widower. And so I believe the Apostle Paul was a widower. And he said, you know what? I'm not going to get married. I can. I, I mean, I looked at this and I've studied this so many times. And I'm like, can you imagine being the wife of the Apostle Paul? And go to 2 Corinthians and find out all the bad stuff that happened to him. I mean, he was stoned and left for dead. He was in shipwreck. He was never home. He was running all over the world and upsetting everybody everywhere he went with the gospel. Wow. (laughs) You women, you want to be married to a guy like that? I mean, that, that would be. But he said, you know what? It's better for me to remain single and celibate. And that's what he did. But he didn't say, you have to be like me. He said, I would be good for them you know, to, to be that way. But if they don't have self-control, it's better for them to marry than to burn. Burn simply is have an uncontrolled sexual desire in the sense that you're going to do things that are immoral and violate your holiness and your commitment to God. He's just saying, you know what? Nothing wrong. If your spouse has died, you can get remarried. No issues whatsoever. If you want to find out that where it's spelled out, you could look at Romans chapter 7, the first several verses. Because it says, you know, as long as your you're, uh, uh, spouse is living, you're, you're under the law and you're, you're legally married. Don't go out of that. You're an adulteress. But if the husband dies, you're free to get remarried. 
But I want you to turn, and we're going to finish with this, turn to the very end of this chapter in your Bible. And you're going to find that that's verses 39 and 40. But here's what it says. Even if you choose to get remarried, it is the same as, we talked about last week, unequal yoke. Uh, Not an unequal yoke, I'm sorry. It says in verse 38, a wife is bound as long as her husband lives. But if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. In other words, only, if she's a believer, only another believer. That's the, unequal, the equal yoke thing. And then he goes and re-expresses at the very last verse of this topic. But in my opinion, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think I also have the Spirit of God. The Apostle Paul says, I'm actually giving you an opinion. It's a personal opinion. It's in the Bible, of course. But he's saying, you know what? Here's something that I can give you. I've experienced this. Years ago when, um, well, people go, well, I want to be happy. Don't you want me to be happy? I've been accused of this many times for a lot of reasons. You don't want me to be happy. I'm like, that is absolutely not true. But happiness doesn't have to do with who you're married to or not married to. Jack Wurtson, many years ago when Faye and I were at Bible college, he was a speaker. He was, he was a, kind of a different speaker. He just said, double, I mean, uh, single blessedness is better than double cursedness. And back then, I was just newly married, and I couldn't figure that out. But now that I've been a pastor for 30 years, and I've been counseling people for 30 years, I found out that married or not married has nothing to do with whether you're happy or not. It has to do with a whole lot of other things. By the way, you might be happy single, and you might be happy married, or you could be not happy both of them. But it's really not dependent on that. That's dependent on the relationship with the Lord. What Ben was leading us in our singing, it's like, hey, it's all Him. It's all focused on Him. And when you do that, you realize that God gives us the power to do what we can do. Now, I don't have time to go into it, but I'll pick it up next time. Is It just says that you know there's a gift of God. And some people, God has made it possible for them to say, you know what? I'm going to be single and celibate and serve the Lord all my life, and that's all I want. Other people, and I don't fit that one, uh, other people's like, man, without my wife, I'm toast. You know, it's not going to work. But the point is this. God doesn't say, well, happiness is dependent on my married or not married. All I know is if you're married, you better make it right so that you will be happy. Because if you do what we talked about in the beginning of the sermon, it works. You're meeting the needs of the other person. And guess what? That makes them happy. And if they're happy, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Remember that saying? Well, it's true. And it just works both ways. If we put the other person first, it changes who they are. It changes the relationship. It changes how we interact with each other. That's what God wants. He just says, you know what? I, I think they'd be happier if they stayed single. It was interesting because I was looking at a congregation earlier today that was filled with widows and widowers. And I'm telling you, not a single one of them ever said, I'm glad my spouse died. But you know what? They have gone on and they're serving the Lord and they're, they're, they're doing what God asked them to do. Point is, happiness is a relationship with Christ, with God through Christ. That's where it is. Obedience to the Holy Spirit. Living by faith. That's where happiness comes in. 
It is not based on what somebody else does for me. Let's all stand together as we close. Father, as I'm sitting here just thinking about this. It's like me poking my nose in everybody's business. But Lord, you're the one that give us, gave us this passage. You gave us these principles. And you want people to know them. Why? Because they're just fun to do. Some of them aren't. But Lord, they are your principles. You know they work. And it's been proven in practicality that indeed they do work. Lord, I pray that as we look at these things, that we would realize that without God, without Christ's help, without trusting Him, without living by faith, some of these things are impossible to carry out. But with your help, we can have a life that's absolutely worth living, a marriage that's absolutely worth having, or singleness that is just as happy as any other uh, relationship. Lord, I pray that as we look at these things, that we would apply it exactly the way it needs to be applied to each of our individual lives. And we thank you that you've been reminded us of these things this morning. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless. Go with God and be a blessing to your spouse.